1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Carlos Ruiz Martinez, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephanie Brem, who is currently an administrator scholar at Northwestern University. Stephanie Brehm is the author of America's Most Famous Catholic, Stephen Colbert and American Religion in the 21st Century published by Fordham University Press in 2019. In this book, Stephanie Brum provides a digital ethnography and rhetorical analysis of Stephen Colbert and his character from 2005 to 2014, and examines the intersection between lived religion and mass media, especially how Catholicism shapes Colbert's life and how Colbert, the character, shapes Catholicism. Stephanie, welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Of course. And and to get us started, um, and, and before we dive into uh, your, your wonderful book, can you begin by telling us a little bit about um, yourself and your background?
0: Definitely. Thank you so much. So... Um... When, you think, when I think about, like, why am I in Religious Studies, right, um, there's two real reasons why. The first is my academic background, right? So I went to Florida State University uh, for my undergrad, and at the time, I didn't know it was, like, one of the best universities in the States for Religious Studies. I worked with Amanda Porterfield and Amy Kohlinger and Martin Kafka, and they were really formative in shaping my um, interest in American religion. I then went and got a master's at Miami of Ohio um, in comparative religion, and I worked with Peter Williams and uh, the the anthropologist James Biello. And then I uh, got my PhD at Northwestern, working with Bob Orsi and Sarah McFarland-Taylor. So my academic lineage really shaped how I understand um, religion and mass media and pop culture and American religious life. Um, but then there's another side, right? And so like all humans, I have a personal life and I come from a multi-faith family. My mom is Catholic. My dad, my sister, and I are Jewish. Uh, so I grew up in this interfaith web, right? My, my parents were heavily involved in both of their religious, um, lives. So, you know, my mom was part of Newman parish in college. She, um, she was part of, we, we always went to church, um, she would go every week, and we would go more like once every two months, you know, um, and she also accompanied my my dad and my sister and I to synagogue. So coming from this interfaith family, you know one way that we dealt with any of the tensions that arose was in in finding the common ground and also finding common funny themes, right? Both my parents are from New England and, and New York, so, like, there's a lot of more similarities than differences um, when you've got an Italian-German-Catholic woman and, and Eastern European-Jewish guy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that's my, my religious studies background, and I'm currently working in the graduate school at Northwestern. Um, I'm an administrator there and an instructor in the Master's in Higher Education program and an associate chair at the Women's Residential College at Northwestern. So I really have a great administrator scholar life. I like the little hyphen there because I get to use my organizational logistics skills and still be part of the academic community.
1: Great. Um, and turning a bit to um, to your book, how did you arrive at this particular project? And, and so in other words, how did you come to be interested in, in media and religion and Stephen Colbert and, and, and Catholicism in particular?
0: Right. Um, well, I started this as an undergrad project. Um, my my undergrad thesis was on Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Uh, it was 2009, so at the time they were really big, both on Comedy Central, and just comparing their and contrasting their Jewish and Catholic um, identities and how that influenced their humor. So I went to Amanda Porterfield at Florida State and said, Hi, I want to do an independent study with you on religion and humor. And she's like, I think we have some Mark Twain in the library. And I was like, Mark Twain, like, are you serious? That's that's as up to date as we've got. So it really sparked my interest. Um, and then when I went and worked with Peter Williams at Miami of Ohio, I got more involved in, in thinking about entertainment writ large, right? What a colleague called the fluff, right? But I really feel that this fluff, the things that popular culture shapes so much of our current existence, and it really deserved to be front and center of how people understand and create their religious identities and also how they contrast themselves with others. Um, it's, it's really, you know, the mediated world is where we live, especially in the digital age, right? Um, it's how we encounter the world around us. So as I was thinking about that, I came to Northwestern and said, okay, I've got these two projects. I can keep working on this, like, evangetainment thing, or I can, you know, I've been thinking about religion and humor, and um, Bob and Sarah were just like, well, no one's written on religion and humor, really. Why don't you dive into that, right? Like, there'd been, you know, David Feltmeade is great. He works on religion and um, comic books or or comics like The Simpsons, Um, and there were other people that had written more about the cathartic aspects of of humor but i was really like no i want us to think about this as um the role comedy is playing in shaping identity and and presenting your identity
1: awesome and, and one of the things that i um one of the, the fascinating things about your book is is there's this dynamic between stephen colbert's personal catholicism um and, and the catholicism of of his character in the colbert report um, And and there's sort of a a boundary between um, reality and and comic representation that that is complex. Can you elaborate on that dynamic a little bit?
0: Definitely. Well, you know, I would go in and people would say, is he really Catholic like in real life? And I was like, but all the world is a stage. It's all performance. Right. And so having to parse that out, there was this aspect of doublespeak that the persona really um, allowed Colbert to embrace that um, that I think was really important at the time to try and see where the boundaries between at the you know, especially politically um, liberal and conservative boundaries and how they were blended or or not as stark as we would think they are, right? Um, and this boundary is you're right. it is complex. It's also really, really hard to, study a person whose main character is also named that person. (laughs) Um, I I was using scare quotes for a while in my dissertation. And then when I was transitioning into the book, they're like, oh my God, we can't do like scare quotes are going to just freak people out. So I came up with the idea of doing all caps, but small um, print as if, cause Colbert, the character is really yelling at you all the time and like all caps is really representative of yelling at you. Um, But it was really hard to find the moments where it would be a different person. So I'd have to be watching for these embodied actions, right? Like, how do I know if he's really laughing or if the character is laughing? How do I know? And, you know, at some point I can't. I can only make assumptions based on hours of watching this man, right? Um, But that's where the performance aspect comes in and, and the assumption that if he is Being perceived by others, there is some way of performance. And so it's just deciphering when he's putting on one type of performance or another.
1: Great. And and so Colbert is a, you know, according to himself, America's most famous Catholic, but he's also a part of a long lineage of influential Catholic public figures in in American mass media. Um, You know, I think uh, Fulton Sheen, for example. Um, Can you tell us a little bit of the history of that lineage of, uh, uh, you know, Catholic public figures in, in mass media. And, and, and then can you um, also explain how is Colbert innovative or what does he bring to the table that is different from, from that lineage?
0: That's a great question. And, you know, when I talk about Catholics and media, the thing that comes to mind, right, Fulton Sheen, and I put him also in context with Father uh, Charles Coughlin, right, these often bombastic and larger than life figures who are authoritative, right? That's the image that I so often think of with, you know, mid 20th century Catholic entertainers is that they are presenting an authority. They're presenting a, a way of life, but also they are in charge, right? They're also all men. So Colbert is not innovative in that way. But where Colbert differs in that authority is that Colbert is a lay Catholic. And so Colbert, when he gives his guests to our Catholic priests space and room to present their ideas, he's still deferring to Catholic clerical authority, right? Because he's not embodying that himself. Um, so I think that's where he's Colbert is innovative. But I also think he's in a long line of these authoritative figures who are Catholic and that, you know. The ties to a known hierarchy are part of what's important in American religious life, right? Like, it's a Catholic institutions. When you think of religion in the U.S., a lot of people their first images that come to mind are priests and churches, right? Because those are other, but they are religion, right? They are they are squarely sacred. And so Colbert is innovating by being a Catholic authority, right? But with but. Removed from that inherent sacrality of the clerical look and clerical um, persona.
1: Okay. And so, related to this uh, notion of, of, of authority, right, and, and, and what Colbert com- contributes, um, you think in your third chapter, you um, think about Colbert as a catechist, which I think is really, really. Um, fascinating and and interesting to think about. Um, Can you, for the non-specialist, can you sort of define catechist? Um, And then explain how Colbert uh, plays into this role.
0: Right. Well, for my book, a catechist is someone who teaches about Catholicism, whether to Catholics or to non-Catholics. And so usually it's to Catholics, right? Someone is teaching them about their own religion or about the catechism. And um, and I'm expanding it and saying that Colbert is a catechist to his audiences, right? Who Many of whom are not Catholic. Um, and I think he Colbert is a catechist because he knows so much about his religion. It's embedded in his um, existence, and it comes out in his language. It comes out in his um, phrasing, but also like, when he, when he makes connections to things, sometimes Catholicism is part of that. He's a catechist because it, it, he's imbe- is imbuing his, his existence with Catholic um, themes. Um, and so it's kind of notable, right, that a lay Catholic entertainer acts as catechist for Catholics and non-Catholics alike, right? He's teaching people about Catholicism. He has this great, um, great segment called the Catholic Bender, where he gave up Catholicism for Lent as one does,
1: Um,
0: but then, you know, was a bad Catholic in that he couldn't fully give up Catholicism for Lent, and he went on a quote-unquote Catholic bender, right? And he's talking about um, all of the uh, trappings, all of the materiality of Catholicism, and he's explaining these things, and, you know, for insiders, for Catholics, the jokes make a lot of sense. For outsiders, they still make sense because you're learning from Colbert what these items are. Um, And I think that even though his version of Catholicism and his version of the catechist is not the official or authorized Catholicism, his status as this self-identified Catholic and this media catechist really shows that he has the type of authority that allows him to mock aspects of Catholicism in a familial, like, teasing way because he's part of the fold, right? He's not saying, you, you Catholics, I am mocking you. He's saying, we, we Catholics, I am mocking us.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Now I want to step back and think about religion and comedy more broadly for a bit. So uh, in in chapter four, uh, you mentioned that that scholars and popular audiences don't often uh, think about religious, how religious identity intersects with uh, comedy and and, and humor. And and you mentioned that earlier earlier. Um, in our conversation, right? That when you were uh, bringing up to your uh, mentors at different academic levels, there's not a lot written. Um, and when we do see see religion and uh, comedy and, and, and humor being treated, it, it's usually Judaism as a stand-in, right? For religion more broadly. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as to what you learned about uh, humor and Catholicism Throughout the course of your research and writing?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because, um, you know, I didn't want, when people said, when I told people I was studying religion and comedy, Judaism came up, and I'm Jewish, right? So the expectation was, oh, I'm studying, you know, myself. And that's just not how I wanted to embrace this understanding, right? I wanted to look at the people we don't think of as religious comedians. And I learned that white male Catholics really base their identity in their comedy as much as others do, as much as Jewish comics and black comics, um, Latino comics. Um, those, These identity politics, right, we just don't, it's part of this white supremacy, right? We don't see it as them basing it in their white Catholic identity. But in reality, they are, Um I didn't fully have a language for this in my book that I, you know, of course with all books you wish you could go back and rewrite whole chapters but I really think that like the white male Catholicism of George Carlin and Stephen Colbert and Jim Gaffigan, right? It's, it's particular in that they are using their Catholicism as either a way to distance themselves, like show their identity as different than it was in the past or embrace aspects of their identity but it's, it's really interesting that, like, they're railing against the man, the hierarchy, but the man is also themselves, too, right? So it's a way for them to try and um, and be in every person, right? And their their Catholic comedy, right, it didn't matter that they were Catholic in the 60s, 70s to now, right? Um, because Catholicism was so heavily embedded already in the white American experience, um, that it wasn't seen as other in the same way that Judaism was and potentially still is that African-American comedy is, that Latinx comedy is, right? The white male Catholicism has become the norm, right? The, for late night hosts, when I was writing this, you know, including Larry Wilmore, right? A black Catholic. There were, I think, seven out of the nine late night hosts were Catholic
1: or had grown up Catholic,
0: right? It's like the Supreme Court, all of a sudden everybody's Catholic on it. So
1: I'm awesome. thinking, you. you say, so you use the term uh, Colbert Catholicism, right? Also in your book. Um, what is Colbert Catholicism and, and how does this uh, this idea of Colbert Catholicism should push our, our understanding of Catholicism in, in the United States or maybe even globally? Right. Catholicism is a sort of global uh, church. Right. And in some ways, this is um, uh, an American Catholic story. But maybe there's a way to to um, think about it globally as well.
0: Yeah, I wish there were I wish that I had been able to spend more time thinking globally about it. Right. But, you know, American religious history being what it is, we we seem to place ourselves within often the continental United States, um, you know, from 16, 20s to now. Uh, And so when I define Colbert Catholicism, I put Colbert's theological musings in context with his humor, right? So Colbert Catholicism is both an act of using humor to discuss um, joy, sorrow, pain, all of the aspects, you know, what, what one could call religious sentiments. And also, it's a type of Catholicism that sees humor as beneficial to one's faith. So that, if I had to, like, summarize what I describe as Colbert's Catholicism, that's it, right? Humor is integral to how he understands his religion. He articulates and embodies and performs his lay religiosity, right, by taking and choosing parts of Catholicism, right? He's not, Catholicism is not one thing. It has never been, regardless of, you know, there's institutional, there's lay, there's everything in between. And so Colbert embodies that by, with his persona, right? And by being a real person as well, the, the dual performances mean that he we can see how he picks and chooses things. We are seeing the embodiment of that choice, which some could argue would be an American aspect. But I think global Catholicism is also doing that Picking and choosing, right? What Greeley called the the cafeteria Catholicism, I think that has, A, always been part of it. You know, we keep thinking it's new. It's not that new, right? But who gets to do the selecting is new, right? The individual authority to choose which aspects you want to include or not include is a relatively new, and the historians in the room are going to be upset that I said that, relatively new phenomenon. Um, And I think Colbert epitomizes that with his personae, right, by having multiple personalities that we get to see and interact with. Um, so that's that's where I think the Colbert Catholicism comes in. He is both picking and choosing, but he's doing so with humor as beneficial, not antithetical to his religio- religiosity. And then Colbert's theology itself combines suffering and joy, right? So if we're looking at Colbert Catholicism, um, yes, humor is beneficial, but it's also this this multiplicity of suffering and joy and he you know his parent his father and brothers died when he was young and so working through some of that trauma he talks about in interviews how he's grateful for suffering so he can understand joy and so you're seeing sort of the the multifaceted aspects of his it's not just on surface funny right there are layers to um, the comedies that come with it
1: Thank you. And as you mentioned, you know, Catholicism is, is not one thing, right? There are lay Catholics don't uh, do exactly, you know, what what the church says, right? Um, and, and so you see this with, with Colbert, even though Colbert is a Catholic, he's also been quite critical of the institutional uh, Catholic church through his uh, comedy. And and this has led to tensions, right? He's sort of touched on some of the, you know, controversial uh points um, within uh, American and global Catholicism. Can you tell us a little bit about some of his more uh, poignant uh, comedic critiques of the Catholic Church and, and some of the the big tensions that he's uh, touched upon?
0: Yeah. And actually, you know what? I expected Colbert to be more critical of the, you know, official institutional Catholic Church than he was. I And people, you know, I think when they look back on the Colbert Report, they read that into what happened because he was so critical of political institutions. They were like, oh, but he was also critiquing the Catholic Church. Well, kind of, but he was okay with these, like, low-stake jokes, right? Like, Pope Benedict has funny red Prada shoes, right? Like, ooh, materialism in the Catholic Church. Like, this is new and not, like, thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. Um, But where I found it most interesting were the clerical sex abuse, Scandals, right. Because only he only had one major segment on the Colbert report devoted to the sexual abuse scandal. Right. Whereas gay marriage, for example, had like 50 separate segments. Um, and I think that reason like birth control and abortion and gay marriage also involved non-Catholic conservative Christian groups. And so he was able to say engage like it didn't have to touch his personal the the non-persona Catholicism as much right but when it got to the clerical sex abuse, that is a Catholic issue right I mean not sex abuse is not totally a Catholic issue. The clerical sex abuse crisis is a solely Catholic issue and Colbert's response right he he was on the air from 2005 to 2014, right? In 2011, so like halfway through his tenure there is when he had this one segment that was really, it wasn't like tearing down the Catholic Church. It was sort of bland and mundane. It wasn't the funniest thing he's ever done, right? And so I think it was harder um, for him to discuss these issues without first having By your leave, from aspects of the of the Catholic institution, right? He waited until the Council of Bishops discussed the issue. It wasn't when other comedians and pundits were doing it, right? The segment came up in 2011 because the Council of Bishops talked about it, Um, and it it really exemplifies how reluctant Colbert was when confronting aspects of the Church's authority. Um, You know, he would let uh, Father Jim Phillips speak, uh, Father Jim Martin speak for the Church. But it wasn't, um, you know, Colbert wouldn't really confront a lot of those critical things um, as hard hitting as non Catholic or people who consider themselves ex Catholic did. And so in,
1: in chapter six, you discuss Stephen Colbert's role in the culture wars, and you know this term "culture wars" is a, is a term that I almost take for granted today, right? You hear it, um, you know, in the news and in you know uh, television television shows and so on. But you use it in, in a you, you do a good job of of actually um, being specific with it um, and saying like this is this is what the culture wars are, how I'm employing them. Can you tell us first? what are the culture wars? And then um, what do you see Colbert's role in them? Like what is his role as a public figure? Yeah, I mean,
0: so it's really, the culture wars has been taken and, you know, scholarship wants to erase these binaries of left and right and liberal conservative in the culture wars. But the mythic quality of this, you know, conservative right and progressive left um, and liberal left, are really important like the mythic quality remains whether or not it's quote-unquote true right that's the image that is mediated to all of us either through the media or through our understanding and our the, the boundaries we're creating around ourselves uh in the us both politically and culturally and you know the 2016 presidential election really illustrated that those sentiments are more than myth, right? They are they are deeply embedded um, in the U.S.'s culture. Um, and so the culture wars is like this stereotype that I that I've embraced, right? Because it's a stereotype that Colbert embraces, and he embraces it because he is mimicking, you know, people like Bill O'Reilly um, on Fox News who proliferated these culture wars. Um, and so when I think about what the culture wars are, yes, there's a lot of scholarship and academic work that's saying it they are more than meets the eye, but the stereotypes remain and their husks are fodder comedically for Colbert at the time to like dig in and personify um, as a way of doublespeak and to say like, I'm mocking it because it exists in the world right now. Um, And so, yeah, I think Stephen Colbert's role in it has been in part to, (laughs) I think he desensitized a lot of those who watched his show into thinking that anyone who made similarly bombastic, hyperbolic um, assertions is... And not to be taken seriously. And I think that desensitizes us in a lot of ways to what we've had in the past eight, nine years, right? Um, this, these um, authoritarian leaders um, who, who play into the culture wars and really bump up the stereotypes into these monoliths that can't be broken down, even though we know that these are not, that not everyone fits these molds. But because Colbert was able to parody the mold, it became even more entrenched in society. Now, I'm not saying Colbert is totally responsible for Trump, but a little.
1: Maybe a little. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a bit of a bonus question uh, for you. Um, and it's about your method. Um, so I would say that it's, it's, you can push back on this, but it would be fair to say that this is, you know, combines uh, rhetorical analysis and and digital media ethnography. Um, And I want to talk about that digital media ethnography. Um, Can you describe a little bit about what that looks like? Um, And perhaps some of the challenges of this particular method, right? Um, I think, especially over the past uh, almost two years now, right, with with COVID, ethnographers have uh, really turned to uh, digital uh, method and sort of finding ways to do ethnography that isn't just close contact with people all the time, right? And and you um, ahead of the cur- you were ahead of the curve um, with this, right? Because your your, your book was published uh, right before uh, the pandemic. So so yeah, I just I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about that method.
0: Well, it was accidental. I planned to do a production ethnography of the Colbert Report, but the jerk canceled his show like a month after I wrote my perspective. So my plan was to be in New York for like all of 2015 and the jerk canceled his show December 2014. So I was able to attend a couple of shows and do some minimal in-person ethnography. And that, that was really helpful for me to like get a grounding in what was going on. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that those producing the show, right? I knew I couldn't do reception studies. That is not my forte. That is for sociologists and media scholars. Like, I don't play that game. And I also knew that, like, I was well-versed in how to study media because of the work I had done in other realms, right? And so digital ethnography, for me, is you know if ethnography is figuring like going walking into the world making of others digital ethnography is the same thing you're just doing it online right like you are critically engaging with the websites right like why are they choosing this color and why would they do this and what's happening there and then you're engaging with the social media or the reddit or the the groups that are critical or you know you're you're looking at all the conversations that are going on it's like immersing yourself in these conversations, and yes, they are often anonymized, and you're not getting, you know, the physicality of it. I wouldn't say you do material studies in a digital context, right? That that might be really hard. But for doing things where you're asking people what they think and what they feel, it's actually a really great way to engage with people, right? Because people are living their lives in digital contexts. And they're often, when anonymous, more open to saying things. Um, So I found when I was studying um, the hashtag cancel Colbert thing that happened in in mid-2014, you know, right at the end of his show, it was about, um, it it was an offensive tweet about Asian Americans, but it was taken out of context. And there was like a whole hashtag cancel Colbert thing. And that was really interesting to, to dive into that, that, um, conflict in a digital realm, right? I don't have to, I didn't feel endangered going in there, right? Because I'm, I'm also anonymous. I'm also able to um, protect what's going on. And there are many others who do it much better than I do. I am much more of a rhetorical analysis scholar who is using digital ethnography methods to gain access. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily call myself solely a digital ethnographer um, because, you know, I'm, I'm not just studying digital spaces. I'm also studying journalistic spaces, which are much more produced, right? So I, am I'm thinking about that production, but for scholars who are, you know, the pandemic has really shown how much there can be done in these digital spaces and how connected we are globally through the internet and these amazing technologies. I don't think it reduces anything religiously. I think we've seen by the number of Zoom masses, right? And the number of online services that religion is happening. And even when we're separated, right? It doesn't mean that it's any less important to look at.
1: Absolutely. And I uh, thank you for for talking to us about your book. And I have one uh, final question. Are there any projects that you are working on now did any lingering questions remain from, uh, you know, America's most famous Catholic that you're pursuing now? Or, or maybe, you know, have you taken on a new direction in your research interests?
0: Well, um, and this is open for anybody who wants to study it. Please take this idea and run with it. You know, I wish that I had had more time to spend on Colbert's interactions with other religions. Like he had this atone phone where a famous Jew would have to call him on Yom Kippur to ask forgiveness from Colbert, right? Like, Oh, man, I wish I had had space and time to, to really dive into that. And, you know, now with Anthea Butler's work and, you know, uh, Kristen Cobez dumezs work, I wish I had been able to think more with the white supremacy narratives that are coming to light. I think Colbert would have played into that in ways that I wasn't able to articulate at the time. Um, but research is not a huge part of my career right now. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm an administrator, I'm an instructor, and I am a mentor. Um, and so I, I get to do the parts I really like. I actually am not, you know, this might be for Bolton, but uh, I got into this for teaching, not as much for research. Um, and so uh, my, my, although at the moment, um, my friend Maya Vries, who was a colleague of mine at Miami and Northwestern, we're thinking about Goop. Um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's company and wellness culture in American religious history and cultural context right now. um, I enjoy co-writing with her and with others. Like I enjoy that facilitating research kind of um, engagement. So that's, that's where my head's at right now.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, It was a pleasure to talk to you Um, and, you know, on behalf of the ACHA and the New Books Network, thank you for chatting with us.
0: Thank you so much. It was wonderful.